0: Ruth, chapter 1, verse 6. It's so good. I'm so excited for you guys. This is going to be great. Now we roll into chapter 1, kind of setting the tone from the book. We saw last week in verses 1 through 5, the the story, the kind of the background of what we're getting into here. The beginning beginning of the story started off with uh, the story of the Israelites who were living in sin and rebellion from God, God had told them, if you live according to my commands and my laws, if you live in my way, then I will bless you. I will help you. I will give you freedom. But if you are disobedient, if I give you commands and you do not obey those, a part of this covenant promise, he said, I will remove that blessing from you and I will bring famine upon your land. I will bring hardship. I will let the surrounding nations oppress you. they will come in and rule and reign over you. they will life will be hard if you are in disobedience to God. and the point of that disobedience or the point of God's punishment upon them of bringing famine and hardship was not to be an ultimate judgment, but instead to be a catalyst. To help them to change. To help them to see that there's famine in the land. That doesn't mean I need to figure out my own plan. It means that God said he would bless us and he would cause an abundance of food if we obey him. So the the idea behind God's uh, punishment of his people there, bringing these judgments upon them is not that it would be the final once and for all uh, judgment upon them, but rather a catalyst to help them say, if you're not receiving from God, if you're not getting what he has for you, it's because you're living in sin. And it was supposed to cause them to repent and to change their ways, to change their behavior, to look inside and not to look at others and blame people around them, but to say, I am the problem. And as each household said, and each person in each household said, I am the problem, then overall, the nation would begin to change. But instead, we see that this first family that's described here of Elimelech and Naomi, the husband and wife and the two kids, Malon and Kilian, instead, they think that they are going to avoid this and they're going to go their own way, and they go to this uh, land of Moab, which is Israel's historic enemy. And they go out there and systematically, over time, uh, Naomi's husband, uh, Elimelech, he dies. And then it is said that uh, Naomi only has her two sons, and her two sons, they get married to Moabite women, which were outside of the covenant. So again, more disobedience. They don't change. They go further into uh, this relationship uh, with these false gods and uh, compromising their lives instead of obeying God. And as time goes by, 10 years uh, pass and these women they have not had any children. part of this uh this judgment upon upon uh god 's people is that he would cause them to be barren He would not allow them to be fruitful not only in their lands but like their livestock and their their people would not uh would be kind of struck with this barrenness so that they would see that they need to repent and so ten years go by, and finally both. Uh, both uh, of, the, of, her, of Naomi's sons, they also die. And so Naomi goes from having this family that is quite large to all of a sudden she is a widow. And then she has her two sons and their wives, and all of a sudden her daughters-in-laws, they, they are also widows. They've lost their their husbands. And now... Naomi is also no longer a mother. And as we get to the end of uh, that first section, the writer of Ruth describes it quite simply. In verse 5, we read this, And both Malon and Killian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. You see, when it first starts off, it describes her by name. But now, as we get to verse 5, now she's simply called the woman. She has nothing left. She has been stripped down. Her identity has been broken. She's no longer a wife. She's no longer a mother. She has no hope of being a grandmother. She is not rich. She doesn't have anything. She's literally nothing. It calls her just the woman. And this, for us, sets the tone, but it also gives us a way that we should understand the rest of the book. It helps us to see not only the rest of the book, but the rest of the trajectory of Scripture. That when you try to decide for your life what you are, you're going to lose everything. Jesus himself said, if you try to save your life, you will lose it. If you try to protect yourself and insulate yourself and you, get, and you don't let anybody come close because they'll wound you. If you put on this defensive shell and you are, are on the lookout for other people. In doing that, you've created an identity where you are exalting yourself above everybody else if you become a really rich person, if you become a really famous person, and that is all that you're about, then you've created an identity. And there is story after story of wealthy person and rich person and famous person who has it all, who comes to the end and says, I have everything. Like, why does this not satisfy? Why does this not work? They literally have the things that, you and I sometimes dream about like, oh, it'd be amazing if I could just walk in and just be like, oh, I need a new boat. Boom, done. Oh, I want to go on vacation for an unlimited amount of time. Boom, done. Like, oh, a new computer came out. Great, I'll get that one. Oh, came, another computer, new computer came out two weeks later and now I'm jealous of that one. Okay, I can buy that one too. Like they literally have the ability to do all the things that you and I would ever think to want. Unlimited food, personal chef. Like we could have like full-time, like personal train, like anything. And yet they will testify again and again and say it it doesn't satisfy and we see also here for naomi for her family was everything family was everything but yet it doesn't satisfy You put your hope in your family, you put your effort into it, it does not give you what you need. Jesus even himself said, If you love your family more than you love me, you're not worthy of me. And instead, what Jesus says is, Come and have your identity in me, lose your life for my sake, and then you will find it. Don't try to protect yourself, don't try to insulate yourself. Instead, offer yourself up to Christ. And in doing so, you will find joy, an abundance, a fullness of life. This is what Jesus wants for you and I, for us to stop chasing identity and other things. This means as someone who's been uh, married for over 10 years, as someone who has kids, like the most important thing to me is not that I'm a husband, it's not that I'm a father, it's not that I work for a specific company, it's not that I'm a pastor. Like all of those things are nothing. It's Christ. And when I love and enjoy Christ properly, then and only then can I be A faithful husband? Can I be a faithful father? Can I be a faithful pastor? Can I be a faithful worker? Can I be someone who faithfully stewards time, resources, money? The only way you can do this correctly is to have your mind transformed because we are innately broken. Our minds chase after things that we believe will satisfy us. Our hearts go after these earthly and temporal desires. And so we need a change of mind, a change of heart. We need to be renewed and transformed. Mind right? Game tight. Again and again and again, we must come to the cross and ask for help. And so we see this morning Naomi's approach. This is what she's going through. She's experienced all this greatness. She's a woman who has lost all identity, and it has landed her in a very specific spot. We'll get to that in just a moment. As we read in verse 6, we hear of her plans. She arose with her (coughs) daughters-in-law To return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters in law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So this woman, she's not even named again yet, she makes plans to return to Israel. Now, why return? Well, she's heard in the fields of Moab as she's out there, still in the land of Israel's historic enemy. She hears that the Lord has visited his people and given them food. When it says that the Lord has visited his people, it means that God intervenes. He sees that they are in trouble. Although they are under God's discipline, although they are under his judgment, God's intervention here means that He has not forsaken them. Although they are experiencing this, although Israel might feel far from God and they might be far from God because they are living outside of the covenant, God will not, He will not divorce His people. He is faithful to them. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how much they do to hurt Him, God's character says, no, you're still mine, and I will take care of you. No matter how much they act like the surrounding nations, no matter how much idolatry they get into, the Lord still shows his grace towards his people. He intervenes. God has given his people bread again. The ironic thing about Elimelech and Naomi leaving Bethlehem previously was that the land that they lived in, the city that they lived in, Bethlehem, was called the House of Bread. That's what Bethlehem means. And the House of Bread was empty. And now Naomi hears the House of Bread has been restocked, so she's on her way back. They got a delivery. So she's like, let's get back out of here. We're going to make our way back over to Bethlehem. Now the food that's provided here by God is purely God's grace, taking care of his people. Had Israel repented? Had they then begun to obey the Lord and keep his covenant? Is this why there's suddenly food? Well, we don't really have any evidence in the text or surrounding sources that remark upon Israel's repentance. So aside from God making sure his people know that he hasn't divorced them, what, what is the purpose for this all of a sudden abundance of food coming? Well, it seems that God's ultimate plan, his ultimate trajectory of putting together the genealogy of David is in place. This is what he's going for. He's orchestrating the genealogical line to continue to David that would lead to Jesus. And so, the Lord brings food so that way his people will be sustained there in the city of Bethlehem so that the king would be born at the right date, at the right time, so everybody else would be born at the right date, at the right time, so Jesus would come and be born at the right date at the right time, so that on Palm Sunday, he would ride into the gate, crossing the Kidron Valley on the donkey, to the day that it was prophesied that the Messiah would come. The Lord is orchestrating a larger plan of salvation, Israel has not earned this. They have not repented. But the Lord knows that there's a bigger problem. Even if they repent partially, they have a heart problem that needs a bigger solution than just the keeping of the law. They would never keep the law perfectly. And so, as they make their way back, verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Daughters-in-law. Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Now Naomi, she is making her way back to Bethlehem, the land of Israel. From Moab, and as she makes her way back, she's going with her daughters. She knows what is in store for them. Israel's historic enemy is coming home with her. Not only that, not only are these two women, who are uh, with her, a part of the enemy of God. These two women are also about to be immigrants. Naomi knows the hardship of what it means to be an immigrant in a foreign land. She has just become an immigrant coming from uh, Israel and going into Moab. She knows the difficulty that they faced. She knows the hardship that was there. She knows that these women will also experience great difficulty, great hardship. And so she says, go, return, return each of you to her mother's house. Now, this is basically, in short, Naomi is releasing them to go home and to be remarried. It's interesting that here Naomi uh, remarks that she doesn't say go home to your father's house, which would be typically uh, the way that this would be uh, set up in this time. But the mother's house is kind of uh, a phrase that is indicative of the cultural phrasing surrounding approval to be remarried. This is the kind of spot where like that courtship and love happened uh, in the term of like the mother's house. And so this is really what's being said here. It's not just like, oh, go home. It's, it's like I'm also releasing you to be married. You'll get a little bit more of that understanding here in just a moment. And so first she gives them this, this plea, but then she offers kind of this this loose spiritual prayer blessing sort of thing to kind of... Uh, Help them out. She says this, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Naomi first makes the plea. Go ahead, get out of here. Go back to... Uh, be remarried to assimilate back into your your people and your culture and then she offers this this kind of uh, this prayer here this blessing upon them but she does this in a way remarking upon an interesting phrase an interesting term and something that uh, will be how we understand the rest of the book. She says, May the Lord deal kindly with you. May the Lord deal kindly with you. Now this, it just goes over our head immediately because of the way that this is set up. As, as English speakers, uh, that word kindly there is the best that we can do. We don't have a word for the word that this is uh, in the original text, but the original text, the, the word is hesed. Hesed. This is a, it's a, it's a word that really means like a, a, a bunch of words to us, a phrase of words. May the Lord deal kindly with you is kind of how we summarize it, but uh, hesed, that word kindly, is a covenant term. And it, it kind of summarizes all the, the characteristics of God, his attributes. When God is said to deal kindly, to, to Hased, uh, it means that uh, it expresses his love, his covenant faithfulness, like that, that, that unbreakable promise, that loyalty, devotion, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty all all, of, all of these things kind of like are all under this one term that like we don't have in English and so this this word dealing kindly has said goes a step further it goes a step further than than the way that we think about things Because when we think about how we interact with others or or when we speak to others, uh, we think about them contractually most of the time. It spells out that I have to do these things, and so I did them. Great, my contract is fulfilled. But this describes God's covenant faithfulness. And a covenant is different than a contract. A contract and the way that you and I typically like, exchange with other people is on the basis of a contract because we are sinful people and we want to limit our liability. Isn't this what the disciples did with Jesus? They said, oh, this man, how, how many times do we have to forgive them? Is seven times enough? That's them trying to limit their responsibility there. And Jesus goes, "Oh no, 70 times 7." Seven. He's not literally saying like that's how many times. He's saying like you're, you're asking the wrong question. We are designed sinfully. We the way that we act sinfully, we're not designed sinfully. The way that we are sinfully because of sin, we pursue things and we speak and exchange with other people on the basis of contract i will do this for you so that you will do this for me i will help you in this way so that way you will owe me and then respond in kind but the covenant faithfulness isn't limiting your responsibility it's unlimited responsibility it's spelling out that i will be with you i will be completely committed to you even if you are completely foolish Even if you do not keep up your end of the bargain, I'm going to keep up mine. And this is rooted in God's character. This is why marriage is called a marriage covenant. Because it means when the other person isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing, you have to do your job and act like they're not doing their job. If they're not doing it right, you can't say, well, I'm going to treat you this way because you're not doing the job right. You have to say, Here's how God has treated me, and so therefore I have to then live that way. And there is no question of, well, when do I get to have a break? When does it get to stop? I'll tell you this. When Jesus went to the cross, he didn't say, well, is that enough? So you don't get to tap out. Because Jesus didn't tap out. He went all the way. He died to himself. He gave his life. And it's difficult, but Jesus says, if you walk with me, if you find your identity in me, then you take my yoke, and it's easy and light, and I will give you rest for your soul. Imagine going the distance, giving everything, but also feeling rested. Like, that's not, that doesn't even compute. We're looking for a break, and Jesus says, no, go the distance, and you will be rested. Rested. But it only works if you go with him. If you try to go on your own, you'll lose. You'll get wrecked. And so this word, said this kindly that it speaks of, it speaks to this covenant faithfulness, an act of devotion, kindness, that goes beyond what the requirements are. And so she prays this for them, that God would treat them this way that he would demonstrate this kindness towards them, this hased, this loyalty, this covenant faithfulness to them. And he says, as you have demonstrated some of this, he says, uh, uh, Ruth and, and Orpah, you have, you have kind of like done this at a lower level. You've done this with the dead, these, her, the, their um, husbands and, and the father-in-law and with her. She sees that these women, they've they have fulfilled their duty. They've done above and beyond. And so she says, I'm not holding you guys anymore. Like, you guys have fulfilled your end of the bargain. You've done everything that you should have done. And then she tries to give them this second blessing. Verse 9, The Lord grant that... Uh, that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So she's, she's praying that God would give them rest, safety, security. She knows that like, they've had a pretty tumultuous life with her already. It's been difficult. Unable to have kids. It's been hard with the death of the father-in-law, the death of the two husbands. Like It's not easy. And she says, I want you guys to go back and find a new family new husbands, and I want you to find a home where you can have peace, you can have rest, you can have your needs met daily, there'll be en- enough resources financially to take care of you. Because Naomi knows that she has nothing to offer these two women. She doesn't have any family, she doesn't have a husband, she doesn't have any kids, she doesn't have, she doesn't have anything. So it's not like it's a financial uh, of help, a financial help for, for them to go with her. Because she doesn't have anything. It's more advantageous for them to go where they can have resources. Having, as a widow, the death of your husband meant that you basically lost almost everything. You lose your support system. You lose connection to all of the other, uh, the other like family lines. And so when someone became a widow, what often, this often meant that this person would be uh, kind of ostracized and alienated. This person would be um, super poor. This is why in the New Testament there are specific instructions, like for the older widows who are vulnerable and weak and can't get remarried if they're over a certain age, that the church is supposed to try to help them as much as they can. Because they don't have the ability to care for themselves as strongly as younger widows might or the opportunity to be remarried as younger widows might. And so, Naomi knows this. And so she tells them, she, she tells them, like, you guys got to go back. She asks for the Lord to bless them in this way. And then we're told that she, uh, they have this moment of emotional women time. Uh, where Naomi kisses her daughters, you know, farewell, and they all loudly wail and cry. Which, yeah, that makes sense. Like you've been like with this like person for like a really long time. But they're not easily persuaded. Look at verse ten, and they said to her, "No, we will return with you to your people." The two daughters, in law say, "Like, no, nope, no, nope, we're not going to go anywhere. Like, we we want to go with you." They're more attached to her than they are to her, their own people. They've learned something. There's something that's there that's turning the wheels. Like, uh, for some reason, we don't want to go. Like, you know, there's probably more there. There's probably like a personal connection. There's probably like a way of life understanding. There's probably things that they've witnessed and they've seen the kindness of the Lord. Even though they've been under His judgment, they've seen the Lord giving grace at times. And this would have been a contrast to the households of Moab where they served these pagan gods and there was uh, you know, human sacrifice and uh, idol worship of all sorts. And so they say, we want to go with you, but Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they should become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? So now Naomi hears them, but then she comes back with this series of rhetorical questions to kind of help them understand, like, the severity of this situation. The first one she says is, why will you go with me? It's, she's basically saying, like, it's foolish for you guys to come. You're going to be much better off in your home country with your people. You have opportunities there. You actually have like family who like, you can get back into the family structure and figure out who, who you're connected to. Like, there's a way that you have opportunity at home. What she says is, it makes most sense for you to go home. So why are you going to come with me? Why are, you going to, why, why are you going to come with me? It's illogical. This is basically what she's saying. You, you got people back there. They're waiting for you. You should, you should just go there. But instead, she, the, the daughter's like, nah, we're going to stay with you. And then Naomi doubles down. She goes even further and she says, have I yet sons in my womb? That they should be your husbands? Like, if you're going to come with me, I can't even give you what you want. I'm too old to bear children. I'm a widow. Nobody wants to remarry Naomi. She's past the age of childbearing, so she's not really economically helpful, or she can't really provide an heir to the family lineage, so she's basically, like, not really a useful uh, marriage material. And then she says this, like, with this kind of, like, offhanded, like, hypothetical like situation like even if i should have a husband this night and should bear sons are you going to wait until they're grown like if i could marry you, like right now and i have like a kid right away are you guys going to wait for them to grow all the way up and then you're going to be married to them and by that time like you guys will be old enough and past the age of childbearing and then you guys won't be able to have kids so this is like really really you know illogical for you to to stay you should you should go back Here's what she says. She gets in a little bit deeper, and we begin to see some of Naomi's character come forth. The true loss of her identity. She says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, bitter to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. What Naomi is telling us here is she's a bitter old woman. That's basically what it comes down to. She tried to do it her way. She tried to say, here's how I'm going to live. Here's how I'm going to interact with my husband. Here's how I'm going to interact with my kids. Here's how I'm going to interact with the pagan culture around me. Here's how I'm going to interact with God. She decided she was going to go her own way. And now we see that she's actually just someone who's bitter and who blames God for her circumstance. She, She... says, I mean, we get this very clearly because this is what she says. It's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, she's using the exact phrasing that is used to describe God's hand bringing the plagues upon Egypt when they were like in rebellion. She's like, the Lord has brought these plagues upon my life. She knows that, she's under this judgment of God and she's just angry. She sees the famine in Bethlehem. She sees her family's exile in Moab. She looks back on the death of uh, her husband, the death of her sons, the barrenness of her, her two daughters-in-law. She sees these are evidences of the hand of God. And she's accusing God of being unjust towards her, basically. This is what it comes down to. She is acting in bitterness because she believes that she deserves something. She believes that she deserves something different than what she has, and so that has led to her bitterness. She feels entitled, right? She's acting on the basis... Of a contract. God, I did this for you, so you owe me. She's not acting on the, on, on the basis of identity that says, I'm God's child, and therefore God wants to give this to me. I'm God's child, therefore I will obey him. Now, the surprising thing is that this is often how we get. We let bitterness come in and fester while at the same time knowing what is true of God. Right? Because just a couple of verses earlier, she was like, oh, God is like this wonderful, like, Hasid God who, like, wants to pour out this kindness and covenant faithfulness and love and, like, genuine affection and loyalty. And, like, he's, like, awesome and amazing. And, like, he, I want that for you. And he's been so faithful to us. And at the same time, she's bitter. Because she feels like, I didn't get that. A lot of times I feel like that's the places that we are at. We'll be singing these songs before or after the service in response to God and we'll be like reflecting with the words and some people will be like, Yeah, that's right and then you'll just be sitting there like like good for you, but that's not true for me. That's fine if everybody else wants to be into that song and sing it, but like that's not my experience. God hasn't dealt with me that way. We know that it's true of God, but we instead want to kind of have throw a pity party. And want to be angry and act in bitterness. She doesn't deny that God's character is kind, that he's this, he, he acts with this Hesed nature. She just basically says, like, I don't experience it. I don't get it. I don't get to have it. And apparently, she seemed, her her bitterness seemed convincing enough. As we get to verse 14, after she says this, we read, then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother in law, but Ruth clung to her. So it seems like Naomi's arguments were effective for Orpah. She's like, peace. She goes out and pursues the natural uh, path. This seems the most logical. Yeah, great argument. Makes sense. Doesn't seem like I should stay here because, like, you really got nothing to offer me. Like, it doesn't really make any sense. Like, this seems like a really, like, I'm going to go to a spot where, you know, I don't know anybody. We're super poor. Like, I don't have a lot of job opportunities. Like, man, that doesn't seem like a good idea. Maybe I'll definitely just go home. And it seems like that's certainly what is happening here. But the thing is that we hear that Ruth, she clung to her. She didn't go. She's determined to go with Naomi. And then Naomi's like, "Geesh, like, what do I got to do to get rid of Ruth? What do I got to do to get rid of her? This is like this is like that. This is like the classic scene that's like in all those movies where like, you know, like they need the wild animal to go away and then like." Or like that they've like made their pet, and then like the like little boy who like loves it's like get out of here! I don't want you anymore! It's like throwing the rocks, and like the dog's like 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 wants to stay, but like all of a sudden runs off, and then like the little boy's like all sad, and you know later it ends like awesome because the dog comes back and like you know ends up being like Air Bud and dunks and stuff and (laughs) things like that, but this is essentially kind of like what's happening here. She's like trying to tell him, like, look, like I've said a million times, like, this is not a good idea. And he, she does it again. But this time, she draws out the spiritual implications a little bit more specifically. Verse 15, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God's return after your sister-in-law. So Naomi says, look, Orpah's going back. She's going back down to Moab. And I'm heading this way. Ruth's kind of there, like a crossroad, like, what do I do? Naomi says, she's gone back to her people who served the Moabite gods. Now, each nation had a god that they served, kind of like one primary god that they served. Uh, you know, Moab, we said earlier, served this god, uh, Chemosh. But these nations weren't monotheistic nations. it wasn 't like they only served that God. These nations also worshiped many gods, and each nation kind of had their like their like pain, patron god that was like supposed to be the one that was in charge of their land, which is basically like these gods are just demons uh, that are there, and they looked to these gods for uh, protection, uh, for safety, prosperity and so there's the offer that that Naomi puts out there like the Lord I want the Lord to bless you in this way but she's bitter and then and then the way that she describes it though is that Orpah now she's gone back to be with her people and to be under that national identity and with that group of people and they serve that God that's over there but now Ruth she has to make a choice she's seeing her sister in law go down the road she's got to decide And then for the first time in the entire book, we hear her speak. <laughs> we haven't heard a darn thing from her yet. We don't know anything about her, except for she's a Moabitess. Verse 16, we read, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. What Ruth's saying is here is like would you stop trying to convince me to leave? She has withstood four assaults by Naomi to get her to leave. And now she communicates this, not from a place of anger, but it seems like more from a place of, of being hurt. Like, I'm trying to stay with you. Why do you, why do you want to get rid of me so bad? And she begs her mother-in-law to stop asking her to leave. Stop pressuring me to get out of here. In Ruth's mind, it would be most natural to return to her own land, her own people, and the gods there. That might be the most logical response. But Naomi knows that if she does that, it means the loss of her new family that she's called to. And we see that she's called to this by the way that she doubles down with her oath and this phrasing that we read in verse 16. Here's what she says to Naomi. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you will die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth will not leave Naomi. Ruth is determined to accompany Naomi for the rest of her life. She has spent 10 plus years with her. She's experienced the way that they live. She's experienced the family life. She's experienced uh, their interactions with the God of Israel. She has experienced what resources, what hardships, what suffering that they have gone through as a family and she is determined to share all the experiences of suffering that Naomi will have in the future right listen to her phrasing where you die I will die <laughs> like that's commitment and there I will be buried She isn't just saying, like, oh, if you die, like, I'm going to die also. The phrasing that she's saying here is, I'm going to be a part of your family to the point that when I do die, I'm going to be buried in the family tomb. Like, I'm not a part of anybody else anymore. Like, this is it. I'm a part of this family. This is where I'm committed. She makes this choice choosing again and again in these increasing levels of intensity to follow Naomi right here's what she says for where you go i will go she doesn't say i'll go if it makes sense to me i'll go if i understand it i'll go if it seems like a good opportunity i'll go if it seems like the the everything lines up where you lodge i will lodge She's just saying, wherever you're going to dwell, wherever you're going to settle down, I'm not going to say this housing is inadequate. I'm not going to make a complaint and say, uh, it could be better. I'm not going to say, like, oh, I really wish like I didn't have uh, you, know, you as a roommate. <laughs> she says, wherever we're going to go, we're going to go together. Your people shall be my people. She knows where she's come from, but she is saying, Family's not going to rule me. I'm, I'm not going to be known by them. I'm not going to serve their gods. She says, Your God will be my God. We are under the covenant family of the God of Israel. I'm in. And then she makes this kind of curious oath at the end that kind of like makes this feel more formal. She says, May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. What she's really getting at here is that she's emphasizing the totality of her commitment. It's lifelong, she's not going anywhere. Now, the craziest part of all this is that Ruth, she doesn't owe Naomi anything. Naomi's already said, like, every, like you're, I'm already paid in full. Like, anything that I owed you, great job. You did it. You went above and beyond. You even showed some of the kindness that our God shows. This has said. You've already, like, fulfilled it. She doesn't owe Naomi anything. There's no expectation But instead, what Ruth does is she says, I'm going to link my life with yours. I'm going to yoke myself together with you. I will not leave you. Why in the world would she do this? <laughs> she could have just said, like, I'm going to come back to Israel and I'm going to go do my own thing. She could have done anything. Why would she say this? What, why, what would make her do this? She knew the Lord. She knew the Lord. She understood his covenant faithfulness. And she understood that this was to be the nature of his people. Although she was a Moabitess, although that country served other gods, it seems like in the course of her time with this uh, Hebrew family that she kind of got to see a little bit of a glimpse, enough to gain an understanding of who God is. And we know that she understood who God is, because in the oath that she makes here at the end, May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you, it gives us a little bit of a clue. Up in uh, verse 16, where she says, Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. That's a a certain way that she talks about God. Your God shall be my God. The title of who God is. But by the time she gets down to make her actual oath, her actual formal commitment, in uh, verse 17, she gives us some insight into her journey. Because what she does here is she reveals to us that she knows the Lord. Because she uses his personal name. And you don't use the personal name of God unless you know God personally. You don't call him out. Maybe she, maybe she says, uh, like she said earlier, Elohim. But here she says Yahweh. This is the name that was revealed to Moses at the Exodus. When Moses says, how how do I know who's who's sending me? What am I going to tell the children of Israel? And the the Lord tells Moses, you could tell them, I am has sent you. I am that I am. I am the Lord. And he reveals himself to be, be Yahweh, the Lord, his personal name. Not the title, but his personal name. And you would only use that if you were a part of the covenant people. And so here we see that she's made a choice that, like, I'm, I'm all in. I'm not only not going to go back to Moab, but, like, I am committing to be a part of the family of God, of Israel. I'm a covenant member. And so she was acting like God has acted towards her, with Hased, kindness. Ruth knew that Naomi was going to die on her own. Like, literally, if Naomi went out on her own and she was going to be back there, she was going to be dead. Naomi was too old, too weak, too vulnerable. She wasn't of value to anyone in society. She couldn't be remarried. She was uh, too weak to work. And so Ruth knew the only way that Naomi would be saved is if she was willing to give up her country, her family, her familiarity. She knew that she wasn't going to gain riches through Naomi. She wasn't going to gain land. She wasn't gaining notoriety. There was no inheritance. She was gaining nothing. And so as an immigrant, she is making a choice for a worse life. When people uh, become immigrants, when they come to another country, the reason that they're coming primarily is because they want a better life. Looks better over there. Seems like there's more opportunities. Seems like I could take care of my family better. But Ruth says, "All right, Naomi, you've told me all the bad stuff that's about to happen. Like you know, you can't have any kids. There's no opportunity for me. Like you've discouraged me from coming four times." And she says, "Like yeah, all right, I'm in." She displays this insane kindness, just. that only comes from God. This hased. By giving everything up, by deciding that she would give up her family, she would give up the land, she would give up everything that she knew. She knew that through her poverty that Naomi would hopefully be saved. She could help Naomi and then we come to verse 18. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth speaks this to Naomi, and it just leaves like Naomi like flabbergasted after that. It's like, okay, like what do I say to that? She's like begged me to stop. She said she's made this oath to follow me forever, to be a part of to like have this covenant faithfulness. But I want you to see this. It is the covenant faithfulness, the godly kindness that Ruth displays to Naomi that works to remove the bitterness. God is using his people to show his character, his covenant faithfulness to Naomi and throughout the story, we see that although Naomi is bitter now, things begin to turn out pretty good for her. Not because Naomi has decided that she figured out how life works and she's all of a sudden gotten good at managing life and figured out how to like, rescue herself. No, but in the fact that she decided that she wasn't going to try to save her own life. She wasn't going to try to do her own thing anymore. She couldn't save her own life. It was only through another that she could be rescued. Naomi's bitterness is the massive problem that exists throughout this entire story. It began in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Everything seemed good, but as soon as there was a famine... Israel was unfaithful. They were all living in sin. That bitterness kept getting worse and worse. She kept getting angry and frustrated. She felt like she was owed an abundance. But instead of repenting and turning to the Lord for provision, instead of asking the Lord for help, she tries to engineer her own solution to get bread. She says, I'm going to get out of here with the family. We're going to go to another land. I'm going to settle for less than what God has for me. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to figure out another way. The Lord said, if you would obey me, then it would be easy. Like, he would just make an abundance. They wouldn't even have to work very hard. But now they have to go out there, and she's going to have to work in the field, and she loses her family. Then the Lord brings back food to Bethlehem, which brings back Naomi. But Naomi comes back, you know, 10 years plus bitter. But the Lord is not done working through the house of bread. He will continue to work to remove the bitterness from Naomi. Bread shows up as a theme several times where they meet a relative. This guy's like some like epic farmer, like wheat thresher baker guy. He probably would have had a pop-in Instagram account if it was like today. But the Lord continues to work in the house of bread to remove bitterness from Naomi and through Ruth to produce King David from Bethlehem who will be the king who rightly rules after God's own heart, who pursues God correctly and from his line will come Jesus of Nazareth. And we come full circle back to Naomi when she, in the city of David, looking to be satisfied by bread and angry at God because there was a lack of bread, we come full circle with Jesus, the greater man from Bethlehem, who says this in John 6:47 Truly truly I say to you whoever believes has eternal life That's simple Whoever believes has eternal life And knowing that people will seek life elsewhere he goes on and he says this I am the bread of life He knew that we would try to satisfy ourselves with bread in the wilderness and we would get out there and do dumb stuff and be complaining and the, the Lord would just give us just enough and then we would end up complaining again and being all mad at God and bitter. And he knew that that cycle would continue again and again and again. And he says, look, you guys can keep going after that, but it's not going to satisfy. You can keep trying to live your own way. You can keep trying to do your own thing. But you will be left empty. He knew, just like the bread in the wilderness, the manna, they ate it, but they died. He knew that it would end in death. And so what he said instead was, I know you guys are after this. And so he came down. He left his arena. He left the heavens. He left the Father to come as an immigrant in our land, to live, to be born in the city of Bethlehem, to be born into a working-class family, to live a perfect life, although one who is completely poor, not having a place to lay his head, we're told in the Scriptures, But he came and made himself poor, though he was rich, so that through his poverty we might become rich. We can't give in to the way of Naomi. We cannot give in to that bitterness because Jesus is the bread of life who satisfies. So we must not go after False gods in foreign lands. We must not, when confronted with the logical choice, say, oh, yeah, this is the easiest. We have to choose Jesus every time. He's the only one that satisfies. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is death. Jesus is the only one who's faithful and shows us this covenant faithfulness, this has said, even when we don't deserve it. He's done it at the cross. And so we celebrate the faithfulness of our Savior this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness. We pray now that you would cause us to respond in worship. Thank you for loving us so faithfully. Thank you for living that faithful life, knowing that we would never be able to live it, that we would never be able to make it to the finish line without failing. And so, Lord, we want to say thank you. We want to tell you that we love you. We pray that you would work in our hearts to change us and transform us, to make us more like Jesus. We want to see you, Jesus. We want to understand that you are the one who satisfies. And so, Lord, we look not to ourselves. We look not to those around us who can help us, but we look to you. You are the only one. And so, Lord, draw us near to you. Meet us where we are. Minister to our heart. We love you. Amen.